You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, his dissertation looks at uh, election manipulation in Russia, Ukraine, and Mexico. So, uh, for those who like sunnier climes, it's nice to have a. Uh, I didn't do my fieldwork there. Why didn't I? I don't know. <laughs> He's published his work in electoral studies and democratization, Europe Asia studies, and government and opposition. He's also uh, worked as a Herbert Scoville Fellow and policy researcher, researcher in Washington, D.C., uh, focusing on nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation issues. So, uh, covers a wide variety of important policy uh, topics, and uh, most importantly, he, his dissertation focuses on electoral manipulation, and he has quite a wide variety of uh, different uh, sub-projects looking at different uh, aspects of, of electoral manipulation in uh, Russia and so forth. Of course, I'm sure people ask him all the time about electoral manipulation yeah. in the United States. Uh, maybe he'd be willing to comment on that. I would be more than happy. Uh, <laughs> I also like to, to announce that he's, uh, he's going to be starting a tenure track position as an assistant professor at uh, Oklahoma State University starting uh, this year, this August. Yes. Right. So uh, his talk today is called Suspicious Behavior using election forensics to detect and explain election manipulation in Russia and Ukraine. So let's give him a warm welcome. So I also want to say thank you all for coming out on such a cold day. Uh, I've spent most of the last decade in the South, so when I see negative numbers in my forecast, it's very frightening and intimidating. Thank you all for being here despite the cold weather approaching. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today is uh, give you first an overview of the field of election forensics. Uh, and then give a couple examples of the state of the art of that field, and then work through using those techniques to test some hypotheses, uh, evaluating election manipulation in Russia and Ukraine, and testing some hypotheses along those lines. So that'll be the structure uh, for the talk today. We know that there are a wide variety of tools that political parties and governments have uh, to bias electoral outcomes in their favor. So these are things like falsification of election results, fraud, uh, vote buying, voter pressure, ballot stuffing, so on and so forth. Um, and we have, of course, traditional methods for kind of first-hand observation and detection of those techniques. Um, probably most importantly, international observation missions, domestic election monitoring groups, um, enterprise and media organizations can try to expose this kind of behavior. And then, of course, opposition parties and candidates can choose, if they want to, to report incidents or make allegations of incidents of election manipulation to the election administration or the courts, the legislature, whatever the institutional structure in the society is. However, uh, those traditional methods have some important limitations, uh, especially when it comes to hypothesis testing, which I'll talk about uh, in a bit. For one thing, uh, they have, they're vulnerable to bias in terms of the data collection that they engage in. Right? 
So international election monitoring missions are usually only present uh, in a relatively small number of precincts compared to the whole electorate. And they also, to try to compensate for that, they tend to try to move from precinct to precinct and only spend a short window of time in each precinct. So that means that governments and parties can try to shunt their election manipulation efforts to unmonitored precincts or to monitored precincts at unmonitored times. Domestic observers often cover a greater uh, geographic swath of the country, but even they tend to be more limited to parts of the country that are uh, have greater civil society activism, greater levels of competition, so on and so forth. And then, of course, uh, governments in non-democratic countries often try to impose limitations on media freedom. So all of these factors mean that there can be some bias in uh, where we're looking for election manipulation, which means we might miss out on important uh, aspects of an election manipulation effort if we're relying solely on these traditional methods. Even setting that aside, though, once uh, those kind of actors, election monitors or opposition groups, have gathered information about election manipulation, they then have a strategic decision to make whether or not they're going to make those allegations and make them publicly. Uh, so we know that, for example, international election monitors tend to mute their criticism of elections in authoritarian regimes because they want to be invited back for the next round to monitor mm -hmm. the next round of the election. So they may, you know, they'll, they'll make some complaints, but they may tone it down from what they actually witnessed. Uh, and then the, the situation for the opposition is maybe even more strategic because they, they operate within the country uh, you know, on a permanent basis. And so they have a choice to make about whether and how to make allegations of election manipulation. Uh, if it's a close election, maybe they have some incentive to kind of push the envelope, maybe force some changes, build some public pressure. Uh, if it's more of a blowout, maybe they have an incentive to stay quiet and go along to get along. So all of this taken together means that the traditional means of kind of first-hand reporting of election manipulation can miss a lot, and if we rely on them, uh, we have to take into account these kind of strategic incentives. And so a lot of hypothesis testing about election integrity and election manipulation relied on these methods 15 or so years ago uh, and is susceptible to some of these problems. So entering uh, election forensics, which more or less came on the scene about 15 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago. And election forensics is a term that refers to a family of statistical tools that we can use to look for patterns in election results that we have reason to believe would be uh, unlikely in a clean election. I'm going to come back to that um, assumption in a few minutes. But first I want to talk about the advantages of this approach. It uses, uh, we kind of have to put in air quotes, objective data. It uses the data that the government itself reports. It takes the official election results from all the precincts in the country where the results are available and feeds them into these statistical models. So there's no question of uh, bias in data collection. We're getting data from everywhere in the country. And there's no bias in this, kind of this question of strategic reporting. We have the data, uh, the official data from all across the country. And we have the results from wherever they're available. Since they're statistical tools, they not only provide us with point estimates for a level of election manipulation, but they also give us confidence intervals or standard errors, a sense of how certain we are of this estimate. And then most importantly for my purposes and something I've been trying to push forward in my work is that we don't have to just use them to give a rating of free or fair or partly free and fair to the overall election. We can disaggregate these, uh, we could disaggregate the results from an, a national election down to the subnational level 
and estimate levels of election manipulation across the country. And that gives us variation, right? That gives us access to variation in the degree to which elections one election has been manipulated in different places. So that allows us to do more effective hypothesis testing about the causes and, and also ultimately the consequences of election manipulation. All right, so I said I would come back to this question of these assumptions about a clean election. So there are some limitations, of course, as with any method to election forensics. Uh, first of all, we need the data to do it, right? We need precinct level election results and the more data that those results carry, the better it is for these models. So we'd like to have ideally uh, precinct level data on not just the results for each party, but also the number of registered voters, uh, absentee ballots, valid and invalid ballots, and so on and so forth. And not every country, of course, provides election data at that level of disaggregation and that level of detail. So it's most useful when we do have all that detail. It also runs up against some limitations when we're looking at some very important kinds of election manipulation that don't take place, they don't interfere with the ballots themselves. Things like uh, restricting opposition access to the ballot or uh, restricting media access, things like that, that can, can affect competition and affect the election result without illegally tampering with the ballots. Uh, and then most importantly, we rely in these methods on some specific formal assumptions about what clean elections should look like. And if we see deviations from those those assumptions of what a clean election should look like, we have to bear in mind that there could be innocent explanations for that deviation. So those latter two points require us to have good qualitative knowledge of how elections are actually manipulated uh, based on things like traditional reporting and also some good case knowledge to know that what we're seeing isn't plausibly explained by some innocent explanation. So for that reason, I, I, my argument is that these tools are really important but they should be thought of as complements to the traditional methods of reporting, not supplements. All right, so now I will, um, I'm gonna go over some of the state-of-the-art tools that are used. Uh, the main point is that it's growing and diverse, uh, but I also wanna identify or dig in, in more deeply into a couple examples that we'll, I'll be using in the uh, analysis section in a few moments. I wanna divide these different tools up. You could do it in any number of ways, but for our purposes today, based on what they're trying to identify. So some of the uh, most commonly used techniques try to just estimate the overall level of manipulation. They're not interested in picking apart you know, how much of this manipulation is due to fraud versus ballot stuffing and so on. They just want to get a sense of the degree to which the election results have been unfairly, illegally biased in favor of one party or another. So some recent uh, proposed techniques include thinking about election results as mixture models, the idea being that they're, that when we look at this data, it's actually two distributions of data, one that's unaltered and clean and one that's altered. Uh, some folks have tried to advance machine learning techniques that uh, feed the data into a, a model that labels each precinct as either being manipulated or not. <clears throat> but uh, the kind of workhorse method uh, was proposed about 10, 11 years ago, uh, which is the relationship between turnout at the precinct level and something called absolute vote share. Uh, and this I'm going to illustrate using uh, this plot here to make this hopefully um, more digestible. So absolute vote share, which is going to be on the y-axis here, is uh, different from relative vote share. So relative is usually what we think about. When we think about the New Hampshire primary that took place this week, think about you know Bernie Sanders got 26% of the vote and Pete Buttigieg got 25 Those are relative vote shares. Uh, absolute vote share is your party or candidate's number of votes 
divided by the number of registered voters uh, in the precinct. So the, the total pool of possible voters, right? How many of that total pool of possible voters did you pull out into your column? So that's on our y-axis here. On the x-axis, we have turnout by precinct, and all the little dots here are, are precincts, uh, Communist Party in red, and uh, United Russia in black. So this uh, method, this idea of relating uh, turnout to absolute vote share, we can understand, I think, using an analogy. When I explain this to people, I like to say you should imagine uh, two precincts, one that's low turnout, one that's high turnout, and think of them as buckets full of marbles. Right? So uh, if we assume that all precincts have essentially the same distribution of support for a particular party across a territory, uh, we think about these precincts as buckets, that would be buckets full of marbles, uh, where each marble is a voter. Right? So we'd have different colored marbles based on who they support. To keep with this color scheme, we could think about black marbles being votes for United Russia, and red marbles being votes for uh, the Communist Party. If I have a low turnout precinct, uh, so I've got my low turnout bucket, I just reach in with one handful and pull out a certain number of marbles. Right? And if about 60%, let's say, just make up a number, 60% of those marbles are black, meaning those voters support United Russia, roughly 60% of my handful should be black marbles or voters that support United Russia. Then if I go to my high turnout precinct, my <coughs> otherwise identical bucket, and I pull out multiple handfuls of voters, right? so roughly about 60% of those multiple handfuls should be black marbles or uh, supporters for United Russia. And so in that, if that's the case, if it's a clean election and we have that kind of pattern all across the precincts, we should see a relatively flat, it doesn't have to be perfectly flat, but a relatively flat uh, relationship between turnout and absolute vote share. Uh, this is kind of what we see here with the Communist Party, except it's actually a negative relationship, which is also suspicious. But what we're really interested here is this really tight and uh, positive, large positive relationship between turnout and absolute vote share for United Russia. And what that means is... Yeah, yeah, this is just one particular oblast, I should have said. Priyanskaya oblast in 2018. Okay. Yeah. I mean, which is, where is it located? Oh, uh, honestly, I'm not, I couldn't tell you exactly where it's located. Maybe some of our Russian uh, uh, visitors could tell us what part of Russia Priyanskaya oblast is. Okay, yes. Thank you. So in, in European Russia. Uh, I do have some maps coming up later on, so we could, we could find it. Um, I chose it because it's, it gives this really clear image. Right, of these two dynamics. Uh, so yes, so if we are seeing this high positive uh, slope relating these two variables, what that indicates is that there's something going on differently in the high turnout precincts or the high turnout buckets. You could think about instead of just scooping out a random handful of voters, I'm searching for the black marbles and pulling them out. Right? And so that could be driven by fraud, it could be driven by ballot stuffing, voter pressure, it could be any number of things or combination of things, but the higher this slope is, the more suspicious it suggests that something is going on um, that is not due to natural turnout. Again, with some assumptions and hopefully some statistical controls. So that's a one measure of overall electoral manipulation. Uh, I have proposed modifying that or adjusting that measure to look specifically for um, techniques like ballot stuffing and vote buying and voter pressure, uh, specifically in the Russian case. And that is instead of looking at overall turnout and the relationship between absolute vote share, uh, look at the relationship between absolute vote share and turnout by absentee uh, and or the mobile ballot. And so this connects back to this idea of having some case knowledge and uh, relying on observation mission reports and so on. 
Uh, we know that, for example, the mobile ballot box, uh, which is something in uh, not just Russia, lots of post-communist countries do this, you can request if you are uh, homebound or if you're in the hospital or something like that, you can request that a ballot box be brought to you on election day, so you can cast your ballot like that. Of course, that also creates an opportunity for the election officials to get that ballot box outside of the view of observers and put more ballots into it than were requested. Uh, similarly, the absentee ballot can be used to facilitate voter pressure techniques. Right? Your boss might tell you to bring in your absentee ba ballot and fill it out kind of on company grounds, set, you know, under supervision. Um, that can be used to engage in vote buying, right? You can be um, uh, paid in exchange for, or it doesn't have to be paid in cash, but receive some kind of benefit for voting for absentee, by absentee, and so on. So it's a way of facilitating um, monitoring of clients, monitoring of people who are uh, being influenced to vote one way or another. And so it's the same intuition, I won't go through it again, but you see the same kind of pattern. Uh, different region chosen, just again, for the clarity of the image, Arkhangelskai Oblast, uh, same thing, we have this flat, fairly negative relationship for the Communist Party, and this positive, although not quite as um, uh, tight relationship for uh, United Russia. Beyond that, uh, the, perhaps the most common use of election forensics is looking specifically at fraud or falsification. Uh, so not overall manipulation, not those more dispersed techniques that I talked about on the last slide, but specifically human beings engaged in writing incorrect, falsified, uh, you know, imagined results on the um, protocols, the election protocols. <coughs> Excuse me. Most of these techniques rely on uh, the intuition that uh, the ones digits for a party's results across a territory should be distributed in a uniform distribution. I will talk about that more in a moment. Uh, but I do want to just point out that there are lots of different ways to test that assumption or evaluate deviation from that assumption including the chi-squared test, which will just give us a binary answer, and then uh, methods that try to say how far away from uniform are these actual results. Others have proposed looking at second digits, so the tens digit of the results, and suggesting they should be distributed uh, according to something called Benford's Law. Uh, to my knowledge, this has not really caught on, and most of the results, or most of the election forensic uh, techniques that look at fraud rely on the distribution of last digits. Another interesting one that's come up uh, in the last few years is looking at, or looking for suspicious numbers of spikes in the distribution of support for a party. Meaning if you kind of line up all the precinct data, uh, precinct level results according to what the vote share was, uh, you might see weird spikes at certain numbers, like maybe 55%. And the idea here is that the government might say, kind of going down the line from, uh, from the top level executive down through the regional and, and frontline uh, agents that we're really looking for 63% vote share in this in this region. That's what we want to get. And so you might see then a bunch of different precincts all landing on 63% to show that they've kind of fulfilled the plan and done their jobs. <clears throat> but I do want to return to that, the primary method, the most commonly used method in the literature, at least so far, which is this idea of deviation from uniform last digits. Again, what this means is we're looking at the ones digit for the results of a party uh, across the precincts in a territory. So you can think about votes for, um, well, we'll just use this example here. This is votes for the Communist Party in 2012 in the city of Moscow. And what we've done here essentially is divided up all the precinct level results into stacks based on the trailing digit, the ones digit of the results. So every precinct where the results for the Communist Party ended in zero in this stack 
the ones that end in one here, all the way up to nine. And so since it's that last digit should just be driven by random noise, right? One voter turns out in this precinct, another one stays home in that precinct due to weather or trying to find childcare or get off work, whatever the case may be. And so <clears throat> in the presence of that kind of randomness, this should look just perfectly random like we see here, essentially uniform. When human beings get involved in trying to come up with numbers, it turns out we're not very good at being random number generators, mm -hmm. and we fail at being random number generators in predictable ways. Uh, too many zeros, too many fives, not enough, low, uh, not enough high numbers, too many low numbers. And so that's what we see, uh, for example, in the same election in Dagestan uh, for the Communist Party, same election, same party. We see way too many zeros, almost too many of uh, this uh, second uh, the trailing digit two, and then nowhere near enough uh, sevens, eights, and nines. And so you can look at this kind of data, and you could say, as I've done in most of my work, okay, we'll just do a, run a chi-squared test, and if it fails the test like this one, we score it as one, otherwise zero. Or you can look at measures of how far away from uniform the, the data is. Okay, so this is a brief overview of some of the techniques that have been used uh, in election forensics. It really is a growing field. It seems like every six months or a year there's a new technique being proposed. Uh, and so what I wanted to do in my dissertation project and then subsequently book project is use these techniques because of the advantages that I talked about before to try to test hypotheses uh, in a theory of election manipulation. Uh, so we have these good theories of election manipulation. Uh, they tend to focus on things like how competitive is the election, how wealthy is the party involved or the ruling party, what's the protest risk in the society. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, they struggle to explain some puzzling outcomes. Like, for example, why is it that we might see a party that is very few constraints, very highly resourced, uh, in a situation where protest risk doesn't change very much from one year to another, um, under-deliver, fail to deliver enough election manipulation in one year compared to another, leading to a bad outcome for the regime. We could think about Russia's 2011 election as an example of this. So I set out to try to construct a theory that would help explain those kind of outcomes as well as some other puzzling outcomes that we don't have um, really great explanations for. And so the theory that I've proposed aims to explain both the severity uh, and the type of election manipulation that governments or parties can generate uh, based on two factors. The first being patronage consolidation, uh, and the second being local political dominance or uh, risk. Please excuse my cold. <laughs> All right, so uh, patronage resources for those who may not be uh, social scientists, when we talk about patronage, what we mean is uh, it's like a, a network, a pyramidal network of people where the people at the top, the small number of people at the top, control things like access to jobs or access to rent-seeking opportunities, the ability to extract money from the economy, uh, access to regulatory favors, things like that. Uh, and they distribute those perks and benefits down the chain through this pyramid in exchange for political support coming back up. And so uh, my argument is it's not so much about whether or not a party has a lot of resources, but how consolidated the control over patronage resources is under the um, influence of one party or one candidate, uh, one family, one clan, whatever the case may be. That's one factor, and I'll talk about how they come together in a moment. Second factor is uh, local political dominance or local political risk is kind of the flip side of that. How much does the party dominate politics on the local level? 
which is to say, um, how what is the level of risk that someone might run if they engage in election manipulation, if they break the electoral law, stuff the ballot boxes, forge the results, et cetera? Uh, how likely is it that their party, their patrons, can protect them from exposure and punishment? So these two factors feed into a principal agent framework where we have leaders at the top who want to win, they want to maximize their election result, their, their, um, their vote share, their margin. And then we have these folks at the bottom who are doing this illegal work uh, and they're not interested in maximizing vote share. What they're interested in is maximizing patronage access and minimizing the risk of exposure. <laughs> so the general framework, and this is sort of a, a sketch. I'm happy to talk about it in more detail if, if folks are curious. <clears throat> uh, but the general idea is that when a party controls a large share of patronage resources or the preponderance of patronage resources in the society, agents are going to have a strong incentive to participate in that network, to engage in election manipulation on behalf of that network in order to gain access to those rewards and all the good things that come along with it. <clears throat> that is mediated, though, by this question of political dominance. If the party that has these patronage resources uh, isn't locally powerful, or it has some local competitor and uh, an active civil society at the local level and so on, it raises the risk that agents will be exposed uh, engaging this kind of behavior and maybe potentially face some kind of punishment. Could be political, but maybe even criminal. And so in that setting, uh, agents may be more difficult to recruit, and even if they are recruitable, they may only be willing to engage in forms of election manipulation that are hard to detect, like vote buying, which takes place all out throughout the society, as opposed to falsification, which we always know where it's going to take place. It takes place in the polling place, and so it's easier to monitor and detect. All right, so I uh, test this theory, uh, as Ted said, in, in Russia, Ukraine, and also Mexico. I'll start with Ukraine, uh, and then close with, uh, with Russia. So as those of you who know uh, Ukraine, study Ukrainian politics, it's a complicated case. It's been a complicated polity over the last 20 years or so. Uh, but it's very beneficial for testing this theory, because we have two incidents in recent Ukrainian history where this degree of patronage consolidation shifted dramatically and unexpectedly. So we have this kind of sudden rearranging of the patronage networks in society after the Orange Revolution and after uh, the Euromaidan or the Revolution of Dignity. Uh, the Orange Revolution, uh, at least in my view, what I'm arguing is that it doesn't dismantle the patronage networks of the, the party of regions in the eastern part of the country, but it does uh, detach those networks from the national framework, uh, which had, was being constructed by Kuchma at the time. Uh, then we have the Euromaidan, which really does fully scramble those pro-Eastern networks because the patron at the top, Yanukovych, disappears and the mid-level patrons, the folks who control the kind of mid-level of patronage resources, don't know who to coordinate on. And so that, if we're thinking about this in terms of patronage consolidation, it essentially disappears from the perspective of the Eastern, the pro-Eastern parties at the time. So this leads to uh, two hypotheses, that the Orange Revolution should reduce uh, manipulation that supports or uh, you know, biases in favor of pro-Eastern parties, but that the size of that reduction should get smaller the more a pro-Eastern party controls the territory. Let me rephrase that um, just as a second way of thinking about it. Uh, if it's true that the, these pro-Eastern region uh, patronage networks survived in those pro-Eastern regions, then election manipulation should be able to continue in those regions. But if those networks were kind of de detached from the national network by the Orange Revolution, the loss of the presidency, the uh, 
loss of uh, Yanukovych's position as the presumed incumbent, or not incumbent, but next president, uh, should cause agents to be less willing to engage in manipulation on these parties' behalf in the western parts of the country, or pro-western parts of the country. Of course, this is all kind of shorthand, right? Pro-western, pro pro-eastern, but for our purposes, I think it's, it's okay for this. Uh, second hypothesis is that the Euromaidan should reduce pro-eastern manipulation, but that the size of that reduction should be increasing with pro-eastern regional control. So the areas that were most firmly in the pro-eastern camp see their patronage networks actually disentangle, disintegrate as a result of this revolution, and so there should be a big drop in their ability to mobilize agents, especially in those areas. Uh, to test these hypotheses, I look at data from 2002 to 2014, uh, precinct level election data, uh, and the dependent variable here is that first election forensic measure I talked about, uh, the overall turnout coefficient. The explanatory variables are for local political dominance or regional political dominance, the margin of victory of the pro-eastern party, the main pro-eastern party, in the regional legislative election prior to the national election that we're looking at. So just to be clear, this is lagged and at a different level, um, a lower level of aggregation. And then dummy variables that just mark whether or not this is the first election after Yorn's revolution or the first election after the Euromaidan. <coughs> Controls uh, that we think are important for understanding election manipulation, uh, and then feed these into uh, multi-level models with random intercepts uh, according to region. can talk about that if there's any uh, question about it or interest in it. Uh, present these results in two ways. First, this is a sort of overall way of looking at it. These are marginal effects plots, and then I can graphically show them as well, uh, or cartographically show them using maps. <coughs> uh, for those who aren't familiar with this, uh, these are marginal effects plots. What they're showing on the x-axis here is the margin of victory for the main pro-eastern party. So the farther we go to the right on this axis, the more the pro-eastern party was in control of that region, as measured by the regional legislature. And you can think about parties over here as being more pro, or regions over here as being more pro-western. Uh, same thing on this side. On the y-axis, we have the marginal effect of either the Orange Revolution or the Euromaidan on that turnout coefficient, which you can think about as the ability of the pro-eastern party to mobilize clients, to engage in fraud, to engage in ballot stuffing, whatever the case may be. This is an overall measure. And so what we're seeing is that in most of the country, but especially in the more pro-western regions, we see that the Orange Revolution resulted in a drop in that coefficient um, for the pro-eastern party. And we don't see a statistically significant difference in the more pro-eastern regions. And the exact opposite uh, relationship obtains after the Euromaidan, where the kind of very few regions on the, the far end of this x-axis here don't show much of an effect, but we see a really big and significant drop in the most pro-eastern regions. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, okay, so looking at the maps, um, these color scales are the same, so they're directly comparable. Uh, we have the turnout coefficient. The brighter the yellow color, uh, the more we're seeing that kind of thing that looks suspicious, those outcomes that look somewhat suspicious on behalf of benefiting the uh, main pro-eastern party. Uh, so this is 2002 election, uh, the one prior to the Orange Revolution. Uh, we see a decent amount of variation across the country, but even in some you know, areas, these kind of light green colors indicate relative, you know, relatively high coefficients. In 2004, this is the election essentially on the tail end of the Orange Revolution, the, the rerun of the election. What we're seeing here is a darkening of the colors in most of these western regions and almost an intensifying in the east. So this is 
just another way of looking at the results um, being told in this story here. Oh, okay, and then we have uh, 2012 versus 2014. Uh, so this is the election that took place under Yanukovych uh, when he was president. And you can see uh, the party, in terms of its mobilizational or manipulative capacity, is doing quite well across most of the country, especially in the southeast. And then after the Euromaidan, we can see that essentially it just goes dark, right? There's the, the mobilizational or manipulative capacity of the party of regions and its clients essentially just vanishes. Again, the, the color scales are the same. <clears throat> All right, so turning to Russia in the last 10 minutes or so of the talk, <clears throat> what was useful about the Ukrainian case for me is that shift in patronage, that those sudden unexpected shifts in patronage consolidation. Uh, what the Russian case provides is a scenario where patronage consolidation remains pretty high, in fact increases over most of the time period that I look at, but relatively high throughout. But there's still varying levels of contestation at the regional level. There are some regions that are more firmly dominated by United Russia than others. And so this allows me to test this hypothesis that uh, when patronage consolidation is high, there's an incentive for people to engage in manipulation, but where the risks of contestation and exposure and punishment are higher, they should turn more to vote buying than to something like falsification. So again, precinct level results, 2003 to 2012, for this, I need two dependent variables, right? One for falsification and one for vote buying. So I use a, uh, that digits test that I mentioned before where we compare uniform to non-uniform distributions. Uh, and then I use my proposed absentee turnout coefficient as opposed to the general turnout coefficient that we used in the last one. Explanatory variables are uh, for overall patronage consolidation, the uh, number or proportion of regional governors who are part of United Russia. Um, United Russia has often been understood as a, as a patronage vehicle that helps tie the localities and regions to the center. Uh, and then for uh, that measure of regional contestation, the same thing, regional margins of victory in the most recent regional election. Same kind of models. Oh, this is just a sense of uh, the variation in regional contestation. Uh, this is, I think, yeah, 2011 election darker regions indicate more active opposition, uh, but the main takeaway is that we see a fair amount of variation throughout the country. Okay, so results. Uh, same kind of marginal effects plot, except this time on the x-axis we have that patronage measure, uh, the proportion of governors who belong to United Russia. And then on the y-axis we have the marginal effect of either uh, rather of local opposition or local contestation, <coughs> either on falsification here or vote buying slash voter pressure over here. And so what we're seeing is that as patronage consolidation increases, we see <coughs> um, less falsification in more competitive regions, or you could flip it the other way and say more falsification in less competitive regions. And then the opposite relationship when it comes to that absentee coefficient, this measure of vote buying or voter pressure, as patronage consolidation increases, people want to engage in manipulation more, but we see a shift uh, toward uh, these kinds of techniques, vote buying and voter pressure, in more competitive regions and less fraud. Uh, again, this is just to give us a visual sense, uh, and I apologize for how smushed Russia is, but I had to <laughs> get it all on the map, or all on the slide. Uh, here we have the indicator of falsification. 
this is any fraud. So what, I, what that variable means for me is that um, we, we have a fraudulent result, a, a violation of that chi-squared test, either for United Russia or for the second place party. And the thinking there is that you can either boost one party's results up or push another party's results down. And I want to be able to pick up either one. Uh, and so where we have the darker color, that's where we see evidence of that fraud. And you can just, if you sort of just scan the maps, you can see that in places where we see more fraud, we tend to see a darker color on the absentee coefficient, which is also, uh, which it means less, uh, less of a relationship between absentee voting and absolute vote share for the ruling party, and brighter uh, colors where we see less fraud. All right, so uh, this was intended to give an overview of election forensic methods, uh, and my argument, or what I hope the takeaway is, is that these are really important tools that help our complements to traditional election uh, observation methods. They can help us evaluate the uh, integrity of elections in a comprehensive, relatively unbiased way. And they also help us uh, <coughs> do hypothesis testing, in particular because we can get comprehensive estimates uh, you know, with uncertainty around them at the regional or even sub-regional levels. And I've tried to illustrate that with a, a kind of a brief sketch of, of the theory that I proposed in my dissertation project and showing you this kind of within-country comparative analysis, <coughs> excuse me, which has the advantage of holding a lot of things constant and allowing us to really focus on things that we think might be important that vary across regions. And this has shown that patronage consolidation does seem to drive overall manipulation, we saw in the Ukrainian case, and that uh, in the context of high patronage consolidation, local levels of contestation do seem to matter for the kind of, of falsification or uh, dispersed kind of manipulation that we see. Uh, so with that, I thank you very much for your attention and uh, look forward to your questions and comments. Yeah, so good question. Uh, <clears throat> one thing that some folks have argued in the literature is that uh, as we, as scholars and then ultimately practitioners, use these methods, it will incentivize incumbents to change their methods to get around them. So you could imagine, for example, and I, was, I don't think this actually happens, but it, it may, and if anyone knows about it, let me know. Uh, what you could do, for example, is instead of human beings being the random number generators, you could have some kind of algorithm create the random numbers for the falsification that could try to get around, um, uh, get around the, that uniform distribution. Uh, so some folks have made the argument that we need to keep developing and refining these tools as governments are learning about them to try to avoid them. Uh, there was one, I don't think it was a paper, I think it was more of a, a working paper um, that argued that Sometimes when we see these really suspicious results, it's because the governments want us to know that, that they know, that we know, that we're watching them, and they're trying to kind of give us a little rude gesture. Um, so I think it comes down to, as, as practitioners of these methods, um, keeping up to date with uh, newer methods, um, making sure that there's still 
plausible, that the assumptions that we're relying on are still plausible in the cases. But to get your point of why report, uh, so I've been downloading data from the uh, Russian Election Commission for years, and I've always been amazed by how much data they put out. And I assume that that's a legacy of the 1990s, why they put out so much data. Uh, and so when they dial it back a little bit, which they do sometimes, um, I think there, might, there must be some kind of small public relations cost to that. And certainly if you only release the top line numbers, that would be a really strong signal that the underlying numbers were totally fictitious. And so I think there are some incentives to report uh, lower level data, if not precinct level data. And so why they continue to resolve precinct level data, I assume has to do with the blowback that they would receive if they didn't. Uh, but in the most authoritarian countries, I assume that they don't. Like I assume that Saddam Hussein's Iraq did not generate this kind of data. Yes. <clears throat> do they use uh, similar dirty style tricks to the US in elections? I'm thinking of things like uh, you know, having letting dead people vote or uh, inviting people who aren't really qualified to vote into the poll. Oh yeah. That yep. sort of thing. Yep. Uh, so there are all kinds of ways, right? There are um, the so-called carousels when people are brought to vote <coughs> in multiple places, right. you know, around from precinct to precinct. Um, there's just outright falsification where uh, hundreds of votes can be added to the to the real results. Um, yeah, there's just a plethora of techniques: um, absentee voting, pressure, vote buying. Um, yeah, it's it runs the gamut. Is paper ballot still the main method of mm -hmm. tabulation? Yeah, although I think there's, and uh, Russian folks might know better, I think they're starting to pilot some electronic only voting. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, certainly in those elections that I was looking at, it was all paper. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the, um, the uh, uh, turnout you know, measure, the turnout by absolute uh, will share. Mm -hmm. So if I'm the ruling party and I know that, um, I'm very popular in Briansk, less popular in Tambov. Would I invest a lot of resources, or which I have a lot, in encouraging turnout in Briansk and Tambov? In other words, that seems like one case where you could come up with in innocent, and this, I yes. mean, it's still manipulation in some sense, but it's not direct falsification. Right. So what you're suggesting is that um, the pattern that we see, or that I showed you in Briansk Oblast, uh, could be not the result of falsification, but could be the result of just like knocking on doors and flyering and that kind of thing, like a, a US style system. Yeah, it's, it's plausible, right? And so that's why we really wanna be cautious about um, using election forensics and not uh, using them to claim too much, right? So that's why I, I'm always cautious to say this is suspicious, right? And so we should combine it with our case knowledge, our election monitors, uh, reports to suggest, well, was there a really intensive, like, genuine get-out-the-vote effort uh, in this election, or was there evidence of this kind of chicanery? <clears throat> and so when we have, like, if we ran these numbers in the U.S., for example, we might see suspicious-looking data like that. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, some people, I, I don't know if it's become a paper, but I know uh, someone in their dissertation did this, <coughs> excuse me, uh, found that you it was really essential to control for race because uh, there could be, in a state, there could be, um, you know, uh, black voters and white voters might vote at different rates and for different candidates. And so you would get this kind of different turnout and different support across different precincts, like rural versus urban, perhaps, 
And so if you didn't control for race, you would capture, you'd think that was suspicious, but once you enter the race control, it goes away. And so for this data, I don't have precinct level controls, but I did try to control for things like, you know, how many pensioners there were in the region, things that might be innocuous explanations for, for these results. Yes? Right, so um, this is not something I've done firsthand, <clears throat> but my suspicion would be that if voter suppression were a real serious problem in a, in a particular territory, um, you would see a, neg a negative or close to negative slope for the party that was the target of that effort. Uh, and then we'd have to think about what is our assumption that what should happen to the coefficient for the other party. I suspect it wouldn't necessarily go up, but we would be looking for that lower slope for the targeted party. Uh, but this is one of the things that I haven't seen election forensics uh, applied to that question. And one of the problems I would guess about it is that um, it's a it's kind of a pre-election form of manipulation. It structures people's voting incentives, not so much um, this kind of reallocating votes from one place to another. And so I wonder if, if that does make it more difficult to identify using these techniques. Um, and I haven't worked on it personally. Uh, but it's certainly, that's where the action is in a place like the United States. We have very little of this kind of manipulation and a lot of stuff like voter suppression, gerrymandering, which there are me measures of, um, uh, and, you know, uh, differing levels of money in politics and so on. Uh, and so to the extent that election forensics could be adapted to those tools, that would be great, or to those questions, those would be important tools, but I haven't seen it done. Is tabulating votes a problem given the geographical expanse of Russia? I mean, are there problems, say, in the ways of getting votes coming in from the Far East, and can that help to skew election results at all? I don't know that there's much of an issue in that sense, um, but what, there, what has been identified is that um, you can look at results over time or uh, kind of when trying to remember exactly what it is, but you can get data on what the turnout was at different hours of the day by precinct. Mm -hmm. right. And sometimes you can see suspicious looking jumps or changes where maybe a lot of people came out to vote at that hour, mm -hmm. or maybe the election commissioners notice like this isn't going the right way, we need to make some adjustment. Mm -hmm. And so you do see those kind of jumps later in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe you see them, uh, maybe, you know, I don't know. I, I haven't thought about whether you could look at results in the Far East affecting results in the West, you know, temporally. It's possible. Yeah, I would think it's possible given the East is more than nine or ten time zones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I conceptualized it as a pretty general, uh, it wasn't, I, I wasn't looking at like 
control over jobs or control over uh, regulatory issues or anything like that. Uh, my question, uh, my uh, way of thinking about it was to what extent is there another entity outside of the ruling party that also has access to those things? And so in Russia, you can think about in uh, the early, early 2000s, we still had uh, regional kind of fiefdoms that the different governors were able to construct. Um, and so as those went away and more and more governors came under the banner of United Russia, it helped to construct that party as the channel of patronage um, down you know, through the localities, uh, patronage resources down, and uh, resource, uh, political support up. In uh, Ukraine, I looked at it from these, you know, just this kind of re-scrambling uh, uh, perspective. And then in Mexico, it was also about the parties. And so in Mexico, we have uh, the, I know that's probably a topic for a different area studies center, but uh, in, in the Mexican case, what we have is the ruling party then in the authoritarian period, the PRI, was the absolute dominant patronage vehicle for 70 years. Uh, and then there was a financial crisis, an economic crisis, and um, condition out, conditional reforms on a bailout package. And so the PRI lost its ability to, through the reforms and also through the just difficult time period, period in the economy, uh, lost its ability to marshal as much resources as it had in the past. And that helped open up a window for the opposition parties to gain control over smaller but still real level, levels of patronage. And so that's the case where you get fragmentation. Uh, and so in that case, what I predict and observe is that you get less manipulation from the formerly ruling party, but you don't get none from the new rising parties because they gain some access to resources, which enables them to recruit people in their stronghold to engage in fraud. Um, so that's the way I conceived of it as a kind of a national level measure. Um, I think more probably needs to be done on my part to get it more down to the regional level. Um, so that's something I'd like to do in the future. Uh, but at least for now, it was conceived of as what is the national, what's the connection between the national leadership and the regional and local structure um, in general terms. Yes. So who, what kinds of yeah. people vote Is for? Transition from <coughs> to uh, my understanding of this, and again, I would, if others have insights into this, I would welcome them. My understanding is that the Communist Party no longer has that kind of lock on older voters, and that it depends uh, on the kind of economic position of those older voters. And um, uh, kind of, I read a paper on this like two years ago, so I'm struggling to recall. But um, the idea was, yes, you're correct. In the, in the 90s and the early 2000s, the older voters tended to vote more consistently for the KPRF. <coughs> um, but now, as a result of kind of shifting economic picture, uh, just aging of different cohorts, um, that support is m mostly shifted to United Russia, with some exceptions in places where the Communist Party remains stronger. Um, and if others have more insight into that, I would be happy to hear it. But 
That's my understanding. Yeah. So just a broader note, but I'll ask a question. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in this contrast between the traditional methods mm. of uh, election monitoring and uh, these forensic methods. And what my, my question is, have they been used in tandem? Like it seems like it would be a nice kind of a test of yeah. the effectiveness of the traditional method. Well, if you have some data, have you done that or think about that? Or has anybody else done that? Yeah, so I first think about it. I, I haven't seen it done. Um, I think it's, my view is that it's going to be increasingly important for monitoring organizations to do this themselves, right? To, to send their monitors, yes, on you know, pre-election and election day, but then also analyze the data when it comes out and see how it fits with what they reported, but also feed it into their ultimate report. Um, one reason they might not be keen to do it is because they do want to be able to dial back their criticisms, right? Um, so it's harder to do that with this, I suppose. Um, I mean, to dial back the criticisms. So, so you think there really is kind of a perverse incentive on the I, part of them? Yeah, to this is research that's been done by Susan Hyde um, uh, on election monitors and their reporting incentives. And I mean, that's not to say that they're bad. I mean, there are election monitors that the game is kind of rigged, right? If when the there's a difference between the monitoring done by the OCSC and the Commonwealth of Independent States, right? When they go to Russia, um, but even the OCSC and, and monitors of that kind of what we would expect to have to have a more neutral approach um, tend to be more modest in their criticisms because they don't they'd rather come back in four or five six years than um, than not. They think that the the benefit, the moral benefit of repeated monitoring is better than really ringing the alarm on one election and then not being allowed to return. Um, but the biggest problem, I think, is the territorial bias, right, and the temporal bias. Uh, I'm not very optimistic that international monitors can monitor very much, um, especially because they, they tend to only be in a place for short amount of time. So once they leave, then you know they know that they can, meaning that election commissioners or whoever is the broker in that, in that precinct, uh, they know that they, they won't be back, and so they can engage in manipulation if they want to. Um, so I'm not very keen on using international election monitoring reports as data for hypothesis testing, because I think it's too limited. Doesn't mean it doesn't give us important qualitative data, but I don't like it for even cross-national um, comparisons of election manipulation. But if you use, I mean, so if you know which precincts the international monitors visited mm -hmm. in Russia, you know, couldn't you run it? So I mean, you're, you're predicting yeah. level manipulation based yeah, yeah, yeah. on these precinct level or region level characteristics. But mm -hmm. Couldn't you add that to your right hand side? Yeah, I do think that, that that there has been at least one or two papers that have tried to do that. Um, that's a good question. Um, there's certainly been efforts to do various kinds of election forensics on monitored versus unmonitored precincts in different ways. Um, I'm thinking of a paper that looked at, I, I think this was not election forensics of the, of the type we talked about today, but just a comparison of uh, vote shares and turnouts in monitored versus unmonitored precincts where the monitors had been distributed randomly. So it had been randomized in conjunction with the monitors. And so they did find that monitors brought down the uh, level of support for the ruling party and also turnout, which suggests that they were effective. 
but they found that this effect was much stronger for domestic monitors who are there all day as opposed to international monitors who were cycling. Finally, one last question. Yeah, of course. For parallel vote tabulations. So yes. I, did you say a little bit more about it? I don't know much about it, but for our understanding, it involves randomized attempts to, uh, you know, compare the uh, votes uh, to, you know, some kind of national and look for deviations yeah. in that sense. So how does that fit into? So it's a traditional method presumably, but I've yes. heard that it's supposed to be more effective. Yeah, you know, no, that is a very effective means, I think, for domestic monitors usually to be able to uh, publicize any, to get a sense of the size of and also to publicize any violations. And, uh, well, I shouldn't say any violations, it's more about how much of a violation or how much of a, a variation was there from the parallel tabulation versus the official results. And so the idea is yes, you want to have your people stationed uh, in randomized precincts, ideally, and uh, when the results are at different stages, when the results are marked, you want to record them as well. And so that means that you have that data because then the official data gets funneled up, and that's where it might get changed, or it might get changed in a back room, right? So we can sometimes we see unofficial results. Uh, I, I've seen pictures of unofficial uh, election protocols <coughs> where uh, United Russia won, you know, by the unofficial results, um, but the turnout was low. And then you see the official result, and there are, you know, six, seven hundred, eight hundred more votes than there were on the unofficial ballot or, um, protocol, and they all went to United Russia. So even if this, even if the unofficial was real, you know, United Russia did really well, but they needed to increase the turnout, and so that's what the you could see the, those kind of variations. Um, so yeah, that is considered to be kind of one of the gold standard techniques for election monitors, but especially for civil society election monitors who want to use that to put pressure on the government. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, any other questions? I don't know I, if we have time. I know it's top of the hour, but. about your indicator about the, sh the share of absentee voting. So mm -hmm. I think that there is a risk that it, uh, in, in many elections it can be uh, quite a small percentage mm -hmm. of all votes. And so it can be used as one of method for classification. Mm -hmm. But it, uh, it may be crucial in some uh, situations, but not, not always. And uh, another reason I just wanted to ask about how it's all related to the discussion of patronage mm -hmm. and so on. because. Uh, like situation in Russia and I guess in Ukraine is very much different, for example, from this like traditional like client rating, gold ratings or rating in America. Mm. And same in post-Soviet space uh, in Russia, there are like other mechanisms of like coercion, intimidation, sure. like this public state sector, like state-owned like control commission, right. and so on. And uh, I mean, so because of the functioning of this uh, sector, and uh, uh, and it seems also this this absentee voting is just another me measure of like drawing uh, the right figures, and it doesn't uh, relate maybe to vote buying so you're right that it's a relatively small number of votes in most uh, most regions, most precincts. Um, so interestingly, the mobile ballot often is more. There are often more mobile votes than absentee votes. Um, in terms of the question about you know how important is it as a measure of vote by, I, you know, I don't know that it's a uh, crucial, or rather that um, the vote buying is the most important 
aspect of the absentee ballot because it's also used for voter pressure and for multiple voting, right? So you have someone go to multiple, multiple people go to multiple precincts and use absentee ballots to vote multiple times. Uh, you also can use absentee ballots to, um, uh, you know, re not require but incentivize people to vote on company property or in the school, in the, in the university, uh, on the you know territory of their employer as a way to try to monitor them and encourage them to vote correctly. And so those are the kind of things that I all I want to capture all together. Uh, it's not just vote buying, which would be, right, like here's X number of rubles in exchange for you going in to vote and showing me proof that you voted for um, United Russia. Just as a, as a really brief tangent, um, people try to get around that monitoring, right? So what often is suggested by the brokers is um, you have to show me a photo of you, you know, show me a photo of your ballot that you marked for United Russia, and if you do that, I'll give you the payment that we agreed on. But I've seen uh, like tutorials about how to fool them, right? So you could, um, one was like take a, a piece of black thread and put it on a piece of invisible tape in a checkmark shape, and then put that over the ballot and then take a picture, and then take it and then mark your own ballot however you want and then show that to the broker. Um, so people, people try to get around this stuff if they care, right? Not everybody cares. Um, so what I wanted to capture with that measure was not just vote buying, but, but all of these tools that um, might be useful for um, engaging clients in one way or another. And I, I would, though you're correct that it's not um, a large number of votes, but we do see variation. We see it more in some regions than in others. And I think that still tells us something interesting. Thank you. All right, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you.